You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes, and with me today is Colin Stuckert, the founder and CEO of Wild Foods Co. and TheAncestralMind.com. Hey, Colin, how's it going? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. Glad you were able to join us remotely, of course, still in lockdown from the COVID-19 quarantine. So <laughs> right. uh, always, always a pleasure to connect with individuals like yourself, entrepreneurs who have a vast experience. Um, you're the CEO and founder of Wild Foods Co. and TheAncestralMind.com. You're a serial entrepreneur with multiple successful businesses under your belt. Um, but you started out as a professional poker player, CrossFitter, and gym owner, which eventually led the foundation for finding your life's work and moving to Austin, Texas to pursue your next big thing, which would be Wild Foods Co. and TheAncestralMind.com. But let's start with that life as a professional poker player, CrossFitter, and gym owner. Tell us where you were, how you know what, what you were doing at the time, and how that eventually led to your entrepreneurial pursuits. Yeah, I mean, to go... To explain all that and kind of put a linear progression to it, because it didn't all happen at the same time. Obviously, it was an evolution as, you know, life is. It was, you know, starting high school, I got into fitness, wanted to be lean and fit, you know, and then I kind of started making a connection to like, well, I want to live a long time. I kind of like living. So maybe I should be focusing on my health. And uh, that was in high school, you know, play a little bit of sports here and there. And then, you know, get out of high school, not really sure what to do with myself never really did it good in school. I was never like a model student. Uh, and so I kind of like went to community college because I didn't know what else to do. And then I just stayed open to ideas and got into self-help, started reading a lot. And then eventually, um, you know, like my, I, in fact, I remember my two buddies invited me over neighborhood buddies that I grew up with and they were like, let's play poker. And I was like, okay, cool. So I come over and play. They start teaching me this Hold'em, you know, which most people know, Texas Hold'em, which is which at the time was popular because of uh, Chris Moneymaker and the World Series of Poker. All that was going on, like the poker boom, as they called it. And I was pretty intrigued because we, we, we played for like quarters or something. But I was like, okay, I won. I made a little bit of money. This is interesting. And then there was actually a casino, an Indian casino in Florida where I grew up. And we, we made a trip out there. And we were playing for, you know, $50 or maybe... I, that's what I started with. I don't really remember so long ago, but it was, it was fascinating because I think I might've won like 10 or $20, but it was so it, the feeling of winning and, and like this idea that I could come here, I could sit in, there's a little bit of a risk aspect to it. So it's kind of exciting. Your nerves are on edge. And then I could walk away with money. I mean, it was like, I was hooked. And I think this was also kind of like the, the, uh, you know, the foundational entrepreneurial kind of um, obsession that later developed. I think this is some of the, you know, the beginning, um, foundation for that. And I got into poker heavily, started playing eventually, you know, went pro for a couple of years, stopped going to college. I think I ended up with about $150,000 that I generated from poker. And then it got really stressful and I could go to work every day and lose, you know, $10,000 at a time. It, I mean, it just, <laughs> it wasn't as fun as it was in the beginning. You know, it really started to set in. They call it grinding. I was grinding every single day, late night. And I just decided like, maybe I need to find something else. And so I started opening my mind to other things and that eventually led me to uh, a juice bar opportunity. There was 
these juice bars called lifestyle, uh, Energized Lifestyle Cafes inside of LA Fitness. And there was a couple in Florida, like four LA Fitness locations, and there was about two of them. And one of them came up for opportunity to develop. And through happenstance and some friends at the gym, the opportunity came to me. And so I started looking into it and eventually just like, wow, this is pretty interesting. This could be a way I can get out of poker. Um, it's going to basically cost me my entire bankroll. Uh, so that was definitely risky in that regard, but I was pretty confident that I needed to do something else anyways. And so I just, and I was into fitness at the time. I was in the gym every single day. So it would be a way I could be in the gym, have a business. Just, it was cool, exciting, et cetera. And I pulled the trigger and that happened. And so I borrowed a little bit of money I didn't have and then spent every penny I did have, opened that. And that was my first business. Wow. And that led me to a lot of other things, which, you know, the story can go on and on. So I don't want to just keep droning on about it. But um, that eventually led me to CrossFit and then health and then et cetera. And then now I'm here today. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting backstory. You were kind of like uh, Mike McDermott and rounders, just basically grinding it out. And you, you were looking for another outlet almost desperately and, and you found it that way, right? <laughs> yeah. That, I love rounders. I love that movie, but uh, it was, it was, it was online poker. So it was more me sitting in front of a computer screen. <laughs> even tougher, even tougher to really keep yourself focused and, uh, and motivated to, to stick with it. Right. Yeah, I mean, all of the skills you develop as an entrepreneur or need as an entrepreneur, you also need for something like poker. I mean, you need money management, you need mental management. And like I said, that was the foundation. It was laid for me. And I think it also, my certain personality traits of just like, you know, be, needing to make my own decisions, not really doing well with authority, you know, not, not really um, afraid of risk, you know, like a lot of these things kind of coalesce to make me who I am. And make me so that I pretty much had to be an entrepreneur and it's not necessarily something I recommend everyone do. I have different opinions on that now after doing it for 13 years, which we can obviously unpack and talk about. But I mean, it is like, it's one of those things that it, like I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's also extremely hard and it takes things just a year long. It's a lifelong process. And it just never ends pretty much. Right. And so you eventually get to this point where the CrossFit, gym ownership, juice bar all kind of comes together and leads you to develop a business that I would imagine you're fairly passionate about, like wildfoods.co. Yep. And wildfoods.co is mainly an organization that was founded out of your passion for food, nutrition, and a personal obsession with optimizing for health and longevity. You sell real food products and supplements focused on supporting a healthy body and mind and living in accordance with nature, which is of critical importance, obviously, when things like COVID-19 yep. are happening. So you listed your going to the start of Wild Foods. You started this in January of 2015, roughly. You listed your first product on Amazon made you a solid $350 in sales. But by December of 2015, you would reach the $500,000 sales mark. You had generated that much revenue with an average monthly sale surpassing $50,000. Yep. Your second year in business, the company finally hit seven figures and has grown every year since. So incredible. And, and your mission at, at Wild is to empower 50 million people with the knowledge they can use to say no to big food, big pharma, bad science, and dangerous health and nutrition dogma. So really, really awesome. Um, I, I try to eat a whole 
foods, not whole foods as in the supermarkets for those listening, whole foods, meaning whole foods, not processed or minimally processed foods myself. So something that's really interesting to me, but walk us through how you went through the process of building a solid business based on your passion. Yeah, that's a, a big one. Uh, I, I mean, we can break it down into a few, you know, important first principles. I like to think in first principles about everything. You know, Elon Musk made that famous when he built SpaceX. By focusing on first principles, we can just kind of remove a lot of the clutter and the fluff and just get down to the basics. And what I would say, if anybody wants to build a business, uh, really any business, I should say, they should read Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. And the basic thesis of, of it is like a business should only exist if it can answer an, a, a why. And usually it's connected to the founder's why of some sort or solving some problem that matters or something. There always has to be a why. And if you look, you know, at the economy, there's a lot of me too businesses. There, there's no defined why. And there's people just trying to make a buck. And that's just not sustainable. And, you know, like as entrepreneurs, like we can actually make real change and we can really improve the, improve the world and, 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 you know, the future for humanity. But we should always be trying to find something that matters to us and something that we can connect, you know, our, our why to, and maybe that can connect to the business's why, uh, and we can actually make a real difference. So entrepreneurship is very much something that it becomes like a personality trait. It's part of your life. It's part of who you are. And, it, you know, some people are more built for that than others. But, like, you just, you just have to have extreme self-awareness uh, to really stick with it, I think. Right. So there's a lot of self-reflection that's involved there. And basically to develop your why, you really need to look at what your own personal as the founder, as the leader, as the team of founders, even you need to do some soul searching for lack of a better term. And you really need to focus on what your principles of success are looking at what your mindset is before you go into all of this. Um, and then, and then you're adding in these other elements like customer journey from a marketing perspective. Can you walk us through what your approach is to your marketing, how you developed a brand that went from, you know, $350 to 500 K to seven figures all within a short two year period, which is very impressive. So what is your process for developing, developing your marketing strategy and your customer yeah, journey? That Again, we got to break it down to the, to the simple first principle. So obviously you can go into all the marketing stuff. You can go on Google and you find articles about customer avatars and targeting and this and that. But I think a lot of that is kind of like second order stuff. We need to get down to the first principles. And so this, the best way to answer this question for me is to go back to the story of, of kind of why and how the company was created. So when I made the connection between my health and the results I was getting, because I was doing CrossFit at the time, and so my performance, how I looked without a shirt off, how I felt, how I slept, all these things mattered tremendously to me. And when I started getting really into nutrition and food and cooking, and I made the connection to get, you know, losing the, the, the last two pounds of body fat to performing my best times on the workout, for example, for sleeping a solid eight hours a night and waking up feeling refreshed and good. Well, when I started cooking real food, when I started buying and sourcing real food based ingredients and, and I was paying attention to the supplements I was taking, I basically become obsessed with it. When I did that, Every, like it was a game changer. And so that led me into nutrition very heavily. And, and the one kind of aha moment for me was finding the paleo diet. And so if anyone's not familiar with paleo, it's basically the, the idea of mimicking how our ancestors ate in the wild before we started farming, right? When we lived as nomadic hunter gatherers. And so for me, this is the ancestral perspective 
And that's why we now have the Ancestral Mind podcast and website. It's all based on trying to understand our ancestral path to make decisions today in our modern world that are going to give us the best outcome. So that is the impetus for the brand. The brand was, okay, I'm, I'm obsessed with sourcing. I want to find the best stuff I can. Uh, it's kind of hard to do that, especially, you know, five years ago, even it's a lot, it's a lot, a lot easier today with just a lot of the companies that have been sprouting up and even Amazon really evolving. Um, but it was hard to find like one company that could just give me all of my products, like my coffee, my tea, my MCT, um, and then the different food products, the different bars, the proteins. And so I decided like, well, what if I source these ingredients for myself, find out where they came from and how they were made. And for me, that was the, that was the primary quality equation. It's always going to come down to how the food was treated, how it was shipped, how it's packaged, how it's processed, and then whether or not I can trust the companies and the producers that are providing these products. And I went into a deep dive. I found a really, really good grass-fed whey protein. Still to this day, I think some of the best whey protein on the planet and a product we still sell at Wild Foods. And that was the first product. And I was bringing these huge bakery bags home of 20 kilogram bags of protein, which is 44 pounds. And I would open them up in my uh, kitchen, you know, powder would go all over the kitchen covering the surface of these big bags. And I would basically do one scoop at a time. And that saved me quite a bit of money doing that. And then I thought to myself, well, if I'm obsessed with quality this way, and, I, and if I care this much about my protein, maybe somebody else will. And so I, started, I looked at on Amazon and like, and like you said, I did the you know, 350 that first month. And then I was like, okay, maybe I'm onto something. And so I doubled down and did more and more. But it, was, it came down to kind of one thing. It was like one product, uh, one possible solution of if people care about quality and transparency, will they pay for it, right? That was a hypothesis. And then one simple test, listed on Amazon, people buy it. Okay, they are buying it. Now I can listen to reviews and I can, you know, invest more time and energy. And then maybe they'll also be interested in other products. And that is literally the foundation of Wow Foods even to this day. It source really good products, offer them to customers, provide uh, content, and all the information and, and answer questions and everything around those products that have a lot of transparency and education around it. And then just keep doing that over and over again. Right. And so you develop these brands uh, online mainly, and then you, most of your team is remote, correct? Yeah. Yep. Awesome. So tell us about your experience with, I mean, there are a lot of businesses and organizations and entrepreneurs right now dealing with a lot of hurdles in terms of how to effectively manage their team remotely. So what are your best practices for managing a remote team and how do you make sure that your quality assurance is up to snuff? Yeah, okay. Well, this, this is a pretty big topic. Uh, I'll try to, again, boil down to the basics. Um, you know, we're moving into a knowledge society, right? And, and I think that the traditional office setup of making people show up somewhere you know, kind of like for accountability purposes, it's kind of a, uh, like a, from a bygone era of, you know, watching factory employees and trying to get the most productivity out of them. But that's not the world we right, live in today. Right. And humans are not designed to sit in an office and then get their best, most creative deep work done. And so like, obviously a lot of what's happening now is, is going to be good for organizations because they're kind of tearing the bandaid off. I think a lot of, you know, businesses just do things because that's the way it's always done. They haven't really considered the potential uh, rewards of giving humans, you know, employees more autonomy in their life and more, more decision-making and, and how they live their lives and where they work and, you know, being location independent. I just think it's amazing. I, I think once you do it, you never go back. That said, it's not overnight, you know, easy. You're not going to have overnight success with this. It's going to be something you have to work on 
but I do think we're moving in the right direction. And, you know, so that's kind of a silver lining for what's going on right now. Um, so some of the best practices are definitely having a couple, couple software tools that you commit to. Uh, you know, Slack's a popular one. Uh, Asana for us is like the cornerstone. And even beyond that, though, when, when you get one of these like productivity apps or project management tools, you have to spend time enforcing uh, rules around them and like how your employees will use them. And you also have to do a lot of training and coaching and constantly be thinking like a systems engineer to make sure these things are working properly. So Asana uses uh, a basic getting things done method where you have an inbox and you have projects and you have due dates and you can assign things to people. This is pretty standard for all the productivity software right now. But it's very easy to just ignore your inbox, right? It's very easy to just not update due dates and then just let your things go in the red. And so you have to have checks and balances every step of the way and certain accountability. And you have to really stay on top of it long enough for people to, to develop the habits around it. And that's really the hardest part with productivity for most people is they don't give themselves the, you know, 30, 60, maybe even 90 days to really build a system and a routine so that it's stuck in nature. And when that happens, that becomes a foundation for remote work. You have to really figure out how to build systems around accountability. And then you can evolve into that and having systems around like for us, we're having, uh, we're experimenting with having deep work routines where our employees basically aren't allowed to check in or be available at certain times of the day. If they set a two hour deep work window, they're not allowed to have notifications on basically. And that's something we're experimenting with because what you thought, what we found and what is pretty common in remote work is if you're always available, you know, it feels good that people can like respond in Slack right away. And someone's always there. It feels like, you know, if you're the boss and your employees respond right away, that they're doing their job. But the reality is that's very, that's a big waste. That's not how, that's not how humans get their best work done. Interruptions are, are poison for remote work. And so there's a lot of different ways to do this, but and we can maybe pull on some of those threads. But having a really solid productivity system down that you commit to and then enforce and then having routines around kind of shallow work and deep work. I mean, right there, that's the, those are the foundational principles. Wow, that's very interesting. I think that's a unique perspective that you don't hear a lot of entrepreneurs talking about. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And I know you do a lot of talking about the concept of deep work and this concept of focus yep. related to the 80-20 methodology that you described, which we'll get into in a second. So let's just, yeah, pull on those strings of deep work a little bit more. I heard you say shallow work and deep work. Can you give the listeners examples of what the differences between deep work and shallow work would be? Yeah. So we'll start with shallow work because that will help define deep work. Shallow work is work that you do that is either you're available and or responding and communicating with other people. So that could be text messaging. Uh, that, could be, that could be phone calls. It could be minor tasks like paying bills, things that just don't require a lot of creative thought or deep thought. And those things, you know, like there's a trap of shallow work. It's this idea that if you respond to things quickly or you mark off, you know, 10 of your tasks that you feel good, you feel like you're being productive, but that's, that's the dopamine trap, you know, because when you complete these small tasks and you feel like you're doing things, you know, you feel like this long conversation or this long meeting you had or whatever is productive. When the reality is a lot of times nothing's even happened. You've just been talking about things. And so it, it feels good. It feels like you're being productive, but the things that really move the needle in knowledge work, are going to be found in your deep work and and, then, and and in flow state and things like that. And so shallow work first is, you know, interruption-based work and or work that involves other people where you're going back and forth. Uh, it is work that is maybe minor, that doesn't really move the needle a lot, but then feels like it might move the needle. And so you have the trap that way. And that's pretty much what shallow work is. Uh, deep work, on the other hand, is basically when you're alone 
and nobody can bother you or talk to you and you're focused on a single task or a big project or effort. So for me, it's writing, it's recording, it's editing. And these are the type of things that to get into a flow state, if you have distractions, if you have people that can interrupt you, it ruins flow state. It ruins deep work. And so the, the way to think about all work, not just remote work, but everybody that wants to be productive and get things done is I always recommend people think about their shallow work routine and their deep work. And then having systems, which is basically a schedule. So like every day you got two hours for shallow, you get two hours for deep, for example. Uh, and then delineating and separating and protecting those routines. I mean, it's a complete game changer. It, you know, when I feel like I'm being productive, it's when I've locked myself in my deep work routine and I'm focused and nobody's bothering me and I commit to it every single day. Whereas what I used to feel like if I was getting my email down to zero and I was doing a bunch of inbox tasks and I was doing all these things that kind of felt productive but wasn't, I've noticed that since we've been in this lockdown is because I've been able to do more deep work and I'm spending more time kind of refining my deep work routine, I'm more productive than I've ever been in my entire life. I mean, it's, it's night and day when you really think about a deep work and shallow work methodology. Right, exactly. So let's also look at your strategies for improving your focus and this concept of the 80-20 method. What are your, first of all, let's talk about the 80-20 method. What is it? How do you define it? Mm -hmm. And then how does that apply to focus? Yeah, 80-20, uh, it was, it's Prayer's principle. He was an Italian economist, uh, or maybe he was, I forget who he was. There's a million articles to read on like the, the origin of it, but it's basically this idea that about 80% of your results come from 20% of either the effort or the input. And you can find examples of this power law in, in pretty much nature. And so it was observed, he was looking at a pea pod in his garden, and he found that about 80% of the peas came from 20% of his pods. And so he thought to himself, well, why are like this small percent of these pods producing most of the peas? And then so he then ventured into looking into other areas, and he found that about 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the wealthy class. And then since then, it's basically been built into productivity as gospel. And it's a concept that is like, we understand it and, and, and it's intuitive and we can maybe even see examples of it, but it's really hard to implement in life. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately uh, in trying to find, you know, areas to tweak and improve my, my deeper routine. But one way to think about this as an example, if my best efforts for what I'm doing include recording, editing, and writing, well, every single day, I should be trying to focus on making sure that my deep work routine is focused on those efforts and then protecting that with every ounce of my energy. And what that means is it might mean that I have to respond to Slack a little bit slower than I'd like, or I'd have to do a little bit less of the task management, in inbox management, and some of the other shallow things. It also means I have to say no to a lot of things. And by doing that, by protecting the 20%, I'm generating most of my results. I mean, if you think about it, 20% of the time, I mean, that, that, for most people, that's a couple hours a day. If you can get a couple hours a day, and this is, again, this is where deep work comes in that's so powerful. If you can get a couple hours a day where you're committed to those important 20% tasks that really move the needle and you protect that with everything, every, almost everything else you do outside of that doesn't matter. That, like that's how powerful this, this power law is. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's really an amazing mindset that you have to begin with. So it's interesting how you've developed these concepts and these strategies to, to not only make your team accountable, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of self-actualizing um, yep. analysis and also you're, you're analyzing yourself and then using these tools to make yourself accountable. 
uh, on your own, which is, is pretty fascinating. So what are some of the traps that you think can affect one's mindset and break you down and kind of derail you? Oh, see, mindset traps. Um, there's a lot. Uh, let's, let's go first principle. So let's just think about this. The, what's the thing? In fact, this is a good concept. The number one thing, that's another book everybody should read by Gary Keller. So if you combine the number one thing, deep work and 80, 20, <laughs> I mean, most people, they, they have no idea. Like they could work half the time they work and, and probably double, triple or quadruple their results. Uh, and so, and then you get the lessons more concept and essentialism and minimal minimalism. But the mindset trap always going to stem from, I think, a lack of self-awareness. And that's why when you do work on yourself, when you give yourself time to think and all the health, you know, all the health things like meditation, feeling better, sleeping better, like these things are all rooted in being in tune with your body and mind, which are connected. And if any of those get out of whack, you know, it affects everything else. So what I see is I see a lot of really bad decisions made and a lot of really, and a lot of like monkey see monkey do. I mean, you can look at examples of this, of uh, like we work, for example, and all the, like there's so much psychology that applies to all humans that even people with billions of dollars and huge companies can fall victim to, right? And it, it always comes down to a lack, I think, of awareness and also a lack of focusing on the basics. We, we convince ourselves as humans that we need to make things complex and that complexity is better. But the reality is almost it never is, right? Like you take a brand like Apple, people respect Apple because their lack of product, because their lack of complexity. And then you take a, a company like Microsoft and a lot of times you don't know what the hell they do or, or what their primary product is. Right. And, and that's reflected in the branding they have and, and the differences and, and it's reflected in, in the customers they attract. And so I think just getting down to the basics of, of just everything really. And like having a real, uh, a first principles framework for thinking, like strip away all the complexity and like, what are the things we know for sure, for sure that aren't going to change. Let's focus on those. Let's master those. And then, and, and really then just forever commit to mastering. Them. You know, like I think, we feel like we learn things, we get good at it, then we can kind of bring new things on. But if you look at anybody, like whether it's a Zen master or whether it's the best company in the world, like success usually comes and, and it's sustained by a constant vigilance to committing to the only few things that matter, to committing to the trivial few, the 20% that matters. Right. And this kind of leads us into this evolution of the concept of the ancestral, the ancestral mind, essentially, right? So ancestral health, Yep. And, and how that eventually affects your psychology and all of those things. So what exactly is ancestral health and this concept of its application to psychology? And why do you think it should apply to all humans? Yeah, well, it, it applies to all humans because it, it, because it applies to all humans. It's, not, it's one of these things that, in my opinion, you know, it, it's a fact at this point. Like we can look into, you know, Darwin, we go all the way back to Darwin. We can talk about uh, natural selection, evolutionary biology, psychology. It's, I mean, paleontology, archaeology, all these things that really, I mean, a lot of scientists agree on are just fact at this point. And some people might try to debate this, whether they're spiritual or not. I don't really get into any of that. I just look at the things that we know for sure. And a few of the things we know for sure are that around 12,000 years ago, humans started farming. Since then, we've been able to do everything from creating running, you know, toilets to running water to iPhones. It's all a result of farming. But with it has come many costs. With it has come uh, disease. With uh, Obviously, today, look at it, uh, overpopulation. It's, it's come with um, economic, you know, the economies and things like that, but also a lot of the negative aspects of that. And simply put, 
humans are designed to be in nature. We're designed to live in small groups our entire lives with the same people and roam around eating and living with mother nature herself. And as we record this, I'm inside of a building right now and I can see out my window and I see nature, but I'm always constantly removed from it. Even when I make myself go into it and get outside and do things that are good for me, it's still a fraction of the time that our ancestors would have done when they literally lived their entire lives in nature. So that's the mismatch principle. It's the idea that we now live in man-made environments. We have cars and automations and our food's prepped for us. We don't have to go out and get it. There's literally every aspect of human life is explained when we understand the human animal that we are. And we are homo sapiens sapiens, which translates to wise man because of our big brains. And we were able to dominate the food chain through a lot of things that I won't go into right now. But it's understanding our biology and understanding us from like our placement in nature is the way that we should reason up. Instead, we take this approach where we think we're different or better or unique or whatever than the rest of the animal kingdom. And then the certain laws of biology don't apply to us and that we're somehow gods. And I see a lot of this faulty thinking where we try to reverse engineer things or, or we try to say, Oh, well, a scientist will figure it out. They just have to do a study or whatever. And it's like, there's so much, there's so much flaw to that. And there's so much ignoring of first principles to the point where you, we now have, you know, heart disease and cancer, the two killers in the United States, the two number one, number two killers, right. That are completely preventable diseases of mismatch of affluence and of too much. Right. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so that's a lot of what I want to do is I want to help people kind of look back to understand how we're so mismatched and how we can mitigate that as much as possible. Right. That makes, makes a lot of sense. So what's the one thing, if you could only give one tip, what's the one thing that people could do today that would have a drastic positive effect on their overall health? Yeah. The one thing would be to buy real food and cook it at home. Do not let corporations cook your food. Do not let corporations process your food. Get the raw, real, as close to nature as possible ingredients that you can, and then put, bring it into your kitchen and then prep your own meal. That, I mean, that's, for most people, 80 to 90% of the problems we face today are at the hands of food and nutrition. A lot of people will try to tell you that it's about eating less and exercising more, but that's complete and utter nonsense. That dogma that has been you know, perpetuated to the American public for the past 40 years with no basis in reality or the facts of biology or processed food or hormones or anything like that. And it's the same just myth that's been perpetuated with the food pyramid and propped up by the USDA agriculture and the processed food companies and all the lobbying they do, billions a year lobbying the food companies do. And uh, like if we just got back to getting like raw ingredients that if we leave them on the counter, they will rot. Like that's pretty much the definition. If you buy something that's raw real, that if you leave on the counter, it goes bad versus sitting in your cabinet for months on end, like this processed fake food can, if, if people did that, we would literally reverse uh, heart disease, cancer, all these diabetes, all these things. And we would save the economy like a trillion dollars in GDP a year. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me, I'll just share a quick personal experience that I had. I remember ages ago, um, I used to eat very, very poorly. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, um, we, we would go out to McDonald's on a very frequent basis. And, you know, it was just a typical kind of American diet, if you will. And then we watched that documentary, mm -hmm. Supersize Me. And I remember seeing mm -hmm. in the extras to your point that they sat like McDonald's French fries um, in the DVD extras, they set them in, in a container 
And, you know, they set them side by side with fries and, uh, and they also had two burgers there, burger and fries from a regular, you know, regular, normal restaurant, and then burger and fries from McDonald's and the McDonald's fries actually, according to the extras, never, never actually like got moldy or old. And, um, Oh yeah. They, Right. It's yep. it's weird, right? Because it's like, wait a minute, what the hell am I eating? No. Nope. <laughs> right. If it's not reacting like a normal organic substance, that's very strange. And that really kind of shook me uh, uh, that experience. And I kind of cold turkey quit. I know that sounds very strange, but good for you. Yeah, believe it yeah, or not, cold turkey quit. Changed my life after that. Started eating a lot healthier. So to your, I, I agree with you a whole wholeheartedly that. <laughs> Largely, if you cook meals at home, if you make your own food, if you go to the supermarket and and to your point, I mean, I know some people argue that it's cheaper and that it's this and that it's that it's really not. I mean, you could go to the supermarket and nope. get, get a bunch of vegetables and come home and make a really nutritious meal for yourself. Um, some nice, solid protein, some other other good things for a relatively reasonable price. It's just the time and the work and the effort that you have to put in, right? Well, and it's also the healthcare. It's also the pharmaceuticals. Right. Right. It's also the sick days from your crappy diet. It's also the fact that now a lot of people can't go to work and they had to, right? Because they're susceptible to a virus that really we shouldn't be that susceptible to. Right. Right. And that's, you know, that's kind of a deep, dark rabbit hole to go into <laughs> and varying opinions on either side. But the reality is if humans were, you know, if, if U.S. was, if we like, I would say sixties health or fifties health. When when most people were lean, when when obesity was like a single percentage point, right? When we didn't rely on pharmaceuticals, when we didn't just sit at home all day staring at screens, like when we got outside, when, like that is, it would be completely different today. And I don't think we would have to have as much of the measures as we as we're having today if that was the the reality for the U.S. population right now. Right. Very good point. Very very good point. Um, okay, so what are some of the traits that you would say need to be present for an entrepreneur to be successful? Ooh, okay, uh, they need to become a stoic. That's the first one. So I recommend looking into stoicism, which is actually a uh, ancient Roman philosophy that is made popular by Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday. I'm sure a lot of people have actually heard of this at this point. But I actually fell into it before was uh, super popular when I was probably about 19 after my dad passed away. It was something that helped me understand life and death and just come to terms with, you know, pretty much the most tracking thing in my life. And even to this day, I, I try to remind myself and live as stoic as possible. And I'll just, I'll basically just give a brief overview. So it's basically based on the foundation that there's only some things in life you can't control and, and, and most of life you can't. And what we do as humans is we spend so much effort and angst and energy, either fearing things that we will never be able to control. Like right now, for example, of, of making up all these um, fantasies about what could happen, what may happen, or, or what we want to happen. And we, as a byproduct of that, is it fills our brain with nonsense, and it moves us further away from taking personal responsibility for our existence. So as an entrepreneur, you are going to learn the hard way that you will have to do people's job for them. People will lie, cheat, and steal. Things will come up no matter what. There will always be problems. And if you don't learn how to mitigate stress and how to basically preemptively train your mind just like you'd train for a marathon or train for a, a fitness event, right? You have to train your mind to be as resilient as possible because when those things happen, you, you can't quit. You have to keep going. And those that, you know, are successful over the long run are the entrepreneurs that can take those obstacles and, and take those circumstances and just use them as fuel rather than getting beaten down by them. So the, the primary thing is just understanding what you can control and what you can. And for most people, 
uh, in life as well as entrepreneurship, it's always, what can I do now? What is the thing I can do now to get the outcome I want? How can I think better to get the better outcome? How can I avoid, you know, fear and things like that from driving me down? And then what actual actions can I take right now that are going to get me closer to where I want to be instead of further away? Right. And um, just a quick sidebar, we were introduced to each other by Logan Sneed, who's been a guest on our show twice. And I can mm-hmm. see why you and Logan are close friends. Obviously, you both believe in in that concept that Logan talks about as well. That is becoming the CEO of your own life and, and turning these obstacles, as you said, into opportunities to grow and to be stronger and, and for to achieve a higher life purpose, if you will. And I think the book you're referring to by Ryan Holiday, there's a couple of them, but uh, The Obstacle is the Way. I'm a big fan of that book as well. And uh, it's a great sort of uh, primer on stoicism and Ryan's perspective on on how that applies to life in general. Um, So what are some of the books that you typically either give to people or recommend to people and why? Uh, Well, for entrepreneurs, that's going to be specific recommendation list. Uh, I'll try to do some general ones. So the number one thing, Gary Keller must read. Um, and a couple of the books on 8020, there's like one or two, I think it might just be called the 8020 principle, but you'll find those, whatever the top ranked 8020 books on Amazon are. Essentialism is a good one. Um, the War of Art by David Pressfield. That is, I mean, especially as we move into a knowledge society, that is a must read for everybody. And it'll explain a lot of the perils and the problems with deep work and, and, and with remote work because it, a lot of it comes down to the individual having to manage him or herself. And you get a lot of what Pressfield calls resistance with the capital R, which, you know, leads us to procrastination. It leads us to the, to doing more shallow work because it's easier and it feels better. Whereas deep work can sometimes be more of about like the process and like, for example, like writing, right? If, if you're a writer and, and every time you have to write, you don't really see the byproduct or the feedback loop or the results of your writing right away. It's a very long-term process, Right. Or, or like working on a, a sport or a skill, for example, where a shallow work, you get to check things off your list. It feels good. And so like, that's the trap again of the, the shallow versus the deep work dichotomy and uh, books. Oh man. Uh, obviously Tim Ferriss for our work week. That was something that was pivotal for me wanting to build a life um, where time and how I spend my time is important. So even to this day with having a multi-million dollar company and being a CEO, I've set up so that I can be remote and I can work from home and my team can as well. And all the flexibility that comes with that. And it, of course, it's a never-ending process. It's not easy, like we talked about. Like it's still something you have to work on, and still you're still gonna have challenges. But that was very influential for me for uh, really who I am today. Yeah, and what do you think sets yourself apart from other individuals who try to start a business and and a lot of them fail? Obviously, the statistics show that a lot of times businesses fail. But there is some secret sauce that makes each one of us different. And I think when we dig into that, we can kind of see some of each individual entrepreneur's strategies for success. So what would you say makes you different? These are good questions. Uh, there's, there's so many categories and, and like there's things that I could point to, right? But, you know, sometimes I think that's egotistical because it's hard for us to really identify things. You know, we, we like to talk about things that sound good or they say hindsight is twenty twenty, of course. But if I had to boil it down to some of the basics and try to think about first principles here, it is a couple things. It is um, a respect for death. It is using things like stoicism and negative visualization for making my, making sure I appreciate the now that I have to not waste time to constantly feel like I'm fighting the clock, which can be a double-edged sword because, you know, like I even have to schedule time to 
to take off work, right? Like that's probably something I have to focus on more. But uh, that is definitely one of those foundational kind of mindset things that direct me. I don't like wasting time. I like getting things done. I like building things. Uh, I also like to now, I like to focus on just like what really matters and just ignore almost everything else. And that's something that I think you develop after doing this for a very long time. It doesn't really come naturally to, to most people. Like we like to add things on. We think more is better. Uh, and, and I fall into that all the time. I mean, the more success you get, the more options you have, and the more you feel like you have to take advantage of those options. But like we talked about before, the results come from constantly saying no. In fact, there's a famous Steve Jobs quote. He, he talks about how he's more, he was more proud of the things they said no to than the things they did say or they said yes to. Right. And when he came back to Apple after being fired, he cut, I think it was like 60 or 70% of the product line and certain whole departments were just basically like they didn't have a job. They had to move to somewhere else and it was a very hard thing. But it's like, you know, when you have principles and when you truly believe them and you're confident and you will, you will, you will stick to them, you know, like something like what Jobs did, like it wasn't easy to come back to the company he was fired from and then basically make all these crazy changes. I'm sure he got pushback from the board and from employees and people probably criticized him and everything. But it's like, when you can do that, I mean, that's where, that's, that's where greatness comes from. I feel like, I feel like greatness comes from being willing to be an iconoclast, being willing to think differently and to stay committed to thinking differently. And when you really realize that most of the results in life come from doing things different from what is common or what most people do, and you can really channel that because it doesn't come naturally. Like we, you know, like I said, we have biological imperatives to want to be like, we have biological imperatives to want to belong to the group. And, you know, hunter gatherers, there weren't leaders. It was very egalitarian where everybody was equal. Uh, it wasn't until we started farming and the, the invention of personal property where we got like kings and, and big men. And then we had wars and we were fighting over resources. That was all a byproduct of inventing agriculture. But for the bulk of our existence, we lived in very equal societies where everybody was equal and uh, you didn't have anyone really above or below. You wanted everyone to be as equal as possible. And so I think being willing, you know, in our day and age, because it's mismatch to think differently and to do things differently and be willing to test things and try things and kind of just shrug your shoulders if it doesn't work out and be like, okay, well, I learned something. I think, in fact, this is an interesting way to say it. Like, I feel like shrugging your shoulders is one of the most powerful things people can do today. It's like, everybody wants to have an opinion on this thing or that thing. Everyone wants you to have some answer to this or that or, or to prove it with facts or studies or whatever. I think what we need more of is to, is to shrug our shoulders and say, you know what? I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. And it's so funny how disarming that is to people because people don't expect it. it. It shows you're kind of respecting what they're saying while not disagreeing with them. And I think we have too much combativeness where people feel like they need to know everything or be in the loop or whatever. And we need more people to just say, I don't know, but, I, but I'm going to try this and let's see what happens. Right. That's great advice. And just kind of uh, touching on some of those things that you talked about, homo sapiens, humans in general have this need for homeostasis, right? This concept of always returning to some form of balance and habit. But at the same time, as as a generalism, uh, humans are really capable of some phenomenally amazing things if they push past their boundaries. So it's that really interesting balance yep. between striving for homeostasis, but pushing yourself on a constant basis, almost like accepting who you are at the same time as always striving for better, right? It's a really interesting sort of yin and yang kind of concept. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so going back also to what you were talking about, about being an iconoclast and being, you know, a disruptor, I guess, is a, is a, a common hashtag you might see nowadays. Um, th- that is kind of a lonely place to be sometimes, right? Because if you're pushing people's, people's perspectives and their ideas and what they're used to, and then again, as we talked about just from a uh, organic biological perspective, humans want homeostasis. They really, as an organism, don't like change, generally speaking, Um, so how do you deal with that? How do you maintain your mental health when, you know, you're trying something that most people might not agree with or might not think is a good idea and you're getting pushback from those, even in your closer circles at times, I would imagine. Right. So how do you push past that and maintain your mental health? Yeah, there's, this is one of the things that like certain entrepreneurs, I think are kind of, they're built with certain uh, habits or, or, or ways of being that make this easier than others. So for example, I've never had anybody in my life say, you know, you can't or shouldn't do that. Now I've been very fortunate with my dad who lifted us up and always told my sister and I that we could basically do anything we want. And, and in fact, if I had to really go down to the origin of why I think I am the way I am right now, it, it was very much based on the fact that he would bring us to his friends and he would brag about us. I mean, to the point where we, we were kind of annoyed by it, where he was just like, look what he can do. He's amazing. If, you know, do your kick that you learned in Taekwondo. Like, and he would just, he would basically just talk us up and build us up. And I think that's something that maybe all parents can learn from, but it's the reason that today I don't really even consider this idea of like failure or this idea that like people will, uh, you know, naysayers or, or that I'll let somebody down. Like, nobody has expectations for me beyond what I have for myself. And so for me, it's like, if I don't try or I don't do or, or I don't take advantage of the time I'm given for me, I'm the person that I'm afraid of letting down. And so the, the idea of like failure and, and other people's opinions just doesn't even like resonate. Now, that being said, I know that because I've seen it, I've seen people, I've seen friends and family. I, I've, I've read stories online and I, and you see people that grow up in different family dynamics where you have, you know, the parents that want the kids to be a certain way and they drill into their mind for years that they have to be a doctor, they have to be a lawyer, whatever. And I, and I actually write about that a lot because I think that's a tragedy. I think it's a tragedy for the future of humanity and for the individual because people will go down paths in life and waste away 20, 30, 40 years of their life trying to please other people while being miserable the, uh, the entire time. And it's, it's a real shame. And so I don't know if I have any exact advice for that because I've never gone through that but I will kind of highlight some things that I've learned when you're dealing with friends and family. Uh, there's the one thing is if you are afraid or if you have people around you that tend to be negative or that tend to want to be careful, then you just can't talk about certain things you ha- that you're going to do with them. You, your better action is to just take it is to take action, get results and really keep it as on the download as possible. And when you get results, it's amazing. People start coming around and they'll start saying things like, I told you so, right? Like you have to really take a, a, an approach with understanding you know, the people around you, what they're going to say, and more importantly, how that's going to affect you. Because some people are more impressionable than others. I can listen to people tell me I'm not going to do it all day long, but it actually fuels me. It's like putting coal in the furnace. For some people, they can listen to people naysaying them and, they, and it puts coal in the furnace that, burn, that burns for fear and uncertainty and it makes them not take action. Right. So you have to really, really understand. And this is how it comes back to first principles. When you understand who you are and, and the way you operate, you might have to not tell your parents what you're doing for a while. You might have to not share with your best friend your plan for starting that business. You might have to just do things that are going to let you get the ball rolling 
without getting any hurdles in the way at, at the hands of people around you. So like, that's really the only advice I can get is I, I would just be very, very aware of the influences around you and how they're, they're going to probably respond based on historical data and then mitigating that as much as you can. Great advice. Really, really, really solid advice, I think, there. So what has been the most difficult part of being an entrepreneur, of being a business owner for you? Yeah, but, I mean, it's like certain certain things that happen, like this, this permitting thing uh, for, for the company about two years in. We were dealing with the city of Austin, and it was very stressful. It was basically like they came to our production facility and with a search warrant to get in because I, we were basically not opening the doors because somehow we got on like the radar for uh, food packing. And there were some permitting disputes where they said we need a permit for the city, but we had one with the state and we didn't. And, and in fact, the reality is like, I could actually have taken them to court probably to this day and proven that like they were trying to impose certain um, food, like city of Austin food permit requirements on us, even though we were food manufacturing and we weren't, even at that point, we weren't even actually doing any packing. We were just labeling things. And so we were falling under a completely different kind of, you know, jurisdiction and interpretation of certain laws. But the reality is they could come show up with cops and basically tell all the employees to leave. And that happened a couple of times. And so for me, this was, okay, we're doing literally $2 million a year right now. This is the most money and the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. This is like, real. I have employees. I have people that rely on this. And like, what's going to happen? Is everyone going to just quit tomorrow? Am I not going to be able to service uh, the orders that have to go out, like we're doing thousands of orders and we're doing thousands of products that have to go to Amazon and things like that. And that could basically be shut down overnight. And so that was one of the most stressful times in my business career. Uh, there's been a couple other times in old businesses where there was like a lawsuit with some partners and like we had a discrepancy, but it was always for like small amounts of money. And it was just kind of one of those things you went through and you tried to figure out and you know, everybody pretty much lost in the end because that's pretty much what happens. Only the lawyers get rich. <laughs> and so it's like, it's always those things that threaten your business or substantial amounts of money. I think for most people, that's going to be the hardest thing because, you know, it's like, there's a certain point where, yeah, if it's a problem for, it costs you a few hundred dollars, you got to pay for permit versus literally shutting your business down. And so that all the money you're bringing in is gone and maybe all your employees leave, you know, that's, that's, and that stuff happens. It happens all the time, you know? And so like I was bootstrapped. I didn't have investors or lawyers or any of these things that could kind of protect us. I, it was literally me and the bank account that I controlled and every penny that, that went into the company and out was my responsibility and paying the employees was my responsibility and, and, and servicing the customers was my responsibility. And so, I, I mean, it's tough. It, it, can, it can be really tough. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a tough thing to deal with for sure. So you mentioned being bootstrapped all along. What are your sort of money management tips and best practices from an entrepreneurial perspective? Yeah, I would, oh man, this is a big one. Um, spend as little money as possible, of course. Like cash is king, they say. That's kind of the standard thing you hear. But uh, I'm just trying to think about some examples like that to illustrate this. I think nowadays what people don't appreciate is what you can get done with a little bit of elbow grease and a little bit of creativity. And so like if you need to get a logo design in fact, this is a good way. Yeah, this is good. So let's say you want to get a logo design and you're just in the starting stage of your business. Cash is tight. Maybe you have no revenue. Well, there's like a couple options for logo design. At the high end, you can get a creative agency that'll charge $10,000 for a logo, right? Or maybe even more. Then you have things like uh, design concepts where you can go to 99design and it's maybe three, $400. Then you can literally go to Fiverr for $5. But even more so down, you can go and learn the basics of Illustrator from a, a tutorial on YouTube about how to design a logo 
put a few things together with a very text-based logo, and bam, you have it with nothing more than 30 minutes of your time, maybe an hour of your time, and you've developed a skill in the process, right? Instead, the urge of we're going to buy results, like we're going to buy traffic, we're going to buy this. And what you see with all of these CC brands or places like WeWork or whatever, this idea that you have money and you're going to buy results is probably the biggest fallacy in business, I would say, right now. And it definitely, definitely, if you're a new entrepreneur, is going to be something you're going to run into because you're always thinking that the new shiny investment or tool or app or agency that promises traffic or whatever. I found that 99% of the time, most of that doesn't pan out. And one way I think about it now, actually, is anytime I'm ever uh, proposed with some kind of proposition for a marketing campaign or something, what I do is I take the results that we're uh, guesstimating and then I cut it in half and then I cut it in half again. And then if I get the 25% of what the projection was, I would consider it a success. And in fact, most of the time, you don't even get that. And so I think just really putting some elbow grease in, being willing to learn and try and test and, and, and do things and be scrappy, and then just really not getting sucked up into the, the kind of like buy, buy for performance uh, trap that a lot of people fall into. I think that's like a foundational way to, to think about money and, and entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's that is a really just solid foundational thing. I love your your tip about quadrupling the figures so that you can kind of cushion those blows a little bit more, right? Well, you make it more realistic because every time I've ever had someone come to me and say, "Oh, this is expected return. Let's say we're going to generate ten thousand dollars, and you know, and you're going to pay ten, so you're getting kind of like a one to one return." Well, I'm going to basically, based on my experience, what I've seen, I'm going to project no more than twenty five hundred in return. Right. And then I got to really decide, do I want to make this investment? Is there a way to make this work in the long term? Am I getting other things at play here? Right. Because you just see this so much. It's the idea that you can just buy and you'll get results. Or if I just put $10,000 in the Facebook ad, I'll generate, you know, X return. I'll make $25,000. Like it's basically the idea that you can put a quarter in the machine, you get a quarter out or whatever. People used to talk about Google AdWords like that. And it's like, yeah, that might've worked 10 years ago when nobody else was advertising on Google AdWords, but that kind of stuff just doesn't work. And, And it's not a realistic way to think about business. Like, you have to really think long-term. You have to assume that most of the dollars you invest in your business are probably not going to reap a reward for like two plus years. Uh, in fact, that's a good way to think about it. A lot of things that we do as business owners, but also as individuals, this is this idea that's like two-year feedback loop. A lot of the things we do today don't show a return for two years. And this, I think, fundamentally is why most people fail at almost everything. They fail whether it's a diet, whether it's fitness, whether it's uh, you know investing, whether it is building something and you know it's crickets, whether they start a blog, a website. Two years is like beyond the scope of human understanding if you really take like the ancestral view. Like we just can't really fathom what two years really is. And some of us are built to think a little bit more long term. You take somebody like Jeff Bezos, he thinks in terms of 20, 30 years, right? He's like a freak of nature in that regard. Like when he was building Amazon, everyone was telling him he's an idiot and even when he went public and the, stock, the, the share owners wanted him to like make money and do all these things, he's like, no, guys, I'm, I want to invest in infrastructure because we're going to have this huge thing and we're going to service all people and take advantage of the internet and it's going to take 20 years of investment and making no money, right? It's like there's only a certain kind of individual that can, can do that. And I think most people fail with entrepreneurship is because they can't think long-term enough and they quit at the dip. Like Seth Ed, uh, Godin talks about in his book, The Dip, which is another good book. A lot of people quit right before they're about to go on the upswing and get results because they don't have a long enough point of view. Right. That That's just uh, hearing you talk about that is is brilliant and uh, great examples that you provided because a lot of times you're right. I mean, people just don't think that way, right? Humans tend to think a little bit more linearly 
um, than, than what thinking two years, three years, five years, 10 years down the line, 20 to 30, to your point, like Bezos is just unheard of, right? Because there are so many twists and turns and things that can change. Um, So talk us through some of those hurdles that you've had in your life, some of those sort of naysayers that you've had to overcome. And what were your strategies? That's one of the things I'm always really curious about, even just myself, but I hope the, the listeners are as well, about how people deal with those types of challenges, right? Let's say you have an idea that's unique or or that others aren't doing, which to me as an individual is a good idea, most likely, at least on its face. If it's something new and unique, mm-hmm. even though it may not be widely accepted, it probably has some merit just on the basis that nobody else or few people are doing it, right? So how do you overcome that when, when let's say you've got an idea that the rest of your team, your advisors, the people in your circle. I know you said you don't react that much to criticism for people around you, especially when you have your yep. eyes set on a particular goal. But but what are the practical ways for persuasively bringing your team back to, okay, guys, trust me on this. This is the direction that we're heading in. And uh, I really want to follow this or target this particular objective. How do, How do you get people to join you on that? Yeah, well, there's probably two ways to think about this. If we're talking in the, the confines of having investors and a team and, and maybe not being the primary decision maker, like that's obviously a certain set of circumstances. You have to play certain kind of political games maybe, and you have to do certain persuasions. Uh, let's talk about the one first about just having an idea and wanting to maybe like invest money or, or build something or do time or do anything that like people nowadays think is risky. So the way to do that is to first read the book called Lean Startup by Eric Ries. This is about the idea of, it's based on software, but you can actually apply it to everything. And, and the more I do this and have done this with Wild Foods, it just like makes so much sense. But it's the idea that you take the, the minimum viable product is what he calls it. It's the minimum viable idea or concept, or in the case of software, it's like the minimum bare bones application that does like one thing that is going to then be able to be used by potential customers that can then potentially solve one primary problem, right? and I'll give you the example that he gives is there's two ways to do software or, I mean, nowadays there's a lot of them, but like the primary two were the waterfall method, which was, uh, I think I'm, you know, I might be wrong on this. It's been a while since I read the book, but it's the idea of you spend a bunch of money, a bunch of research. You maybe do like even, um, customer, uh, what's the, um, not testing, but, uh, feedback groups and things like that. And you do all this with ideas, right? You do all the, move all this information around, you make these fancy, charts and graphs and you look at the market and say, oh, well, this market has X percent, so we can get this much of it. And you basically do a lot of things that have nothing to do with the customer, right? And then you build this huge software, piece of software, and then you go out with a sales team and you, and you, and you try to sell it. And, and a lot of times what they've seen, like literally billions of dollars of crash and burn trying to do this, whether it was the dot-com bus, whether it was pieces of software that were started and then killed, even pieces of technology, right? Like uh, Apple has killed products. The Newton was a huge failure. And so there's a lot of examples of this. But the fundamental difference between that method and the lean startup is the entire goal of the lean startup method is to get some kind of working prototype into somebody's hands. And when I say somebody's hands, ideally your target customer. And, you know, software is kind of specific because you can beta test, you can invite people to come in for free and, and get feedback from whatever. But it's like, you can do this with anything. I mean, you get a prototype of a, of a physical product. Like let's say it's some kind of, you know, advanced back scratcher. Well, you would not want to commit to producing 10,000 of this advanced back scratcher to sell on Amazon until you've got a prototype 
and maybe giving it to people that would buy a back scratcher and ask them if they use it and maybe even just give it to them and see if they actually do use it. And like you could go from one 3D printed prototype that cost you $20 versus buying 10000 for that could cost you $20,000, right? right, and, then, right. And, then, and then when you launch the, you know, you buy them, you launch them and then nobody buys them. It's like that, that's just not a smart way to do it. And nowadays with the technology we have, 3D printing, design, you can do little digital mockups for apps and for web apps. Uh, there's so many things that you can do where you can get actual customer feedback as fast as possible in a quick manner. And then you can use that to, to, to act, not only build a great product, but also avoid wasting lots and lots of money. And so as it applies to everything, the number one thing people have to do is you have to get and talk to your potential customers, your potential audience. And I mean, talk to them. I mean, like, get them on the phone with them, get them in person, you know, ask questions. Like, and, and this is where you see a lot of the best entrepreneurs and the best uh, success stories come from is they're scratching their own itch. Something happened and whether it was Airbnb and they, they need a solution. And it's something that happened in their life. They solved this problem. They solved the problem a lot of times for themselves or for somebody close to them. And then they're like, okay, wait a second. This is, they even wanted something. And then they went out and to try to find other people that might be interested as well. And then propose that solution or do, or test or do things. And then you just kind of grow organically from there. And it's literally the night and day difference between like raising venture capital money where you raise millions of dollars to like create something and then hope people use it versus building something like organically from the ground up because you're actually talking to customers. I mean, that, that night and day, it's just such a night and day difference. And for anybody that's doing anything in business or entrepreneurship, you have to become customer obsessed and really, really get to know who you're going to serve. I mean, it's the most important thing. Right. Yeah. That's, a, that's just a, a great point and a great analysis because a lot of times I, I think entrepreneurs today, for the most part, speaking very generally, do have this common and it, it's just humanistic, right? To be the human, the human organism is generally speaking selfish. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, or if you look at, at the evolution of what's called spiral dynamics, which is basically the evolution of human thinking and consciousness on a variety of different levels. But when you look at those things, it's very me centric first. That's what we are just yep. as biological beings, right? Humans are selfish to begin with. And so I think even entrepreneurs, when entering this new world, can get kind of lost in this subconscious. I, I, I wouldn't say that it's even on a intentional or quote unquote conscious level, but subconsciously they're just, they're worried about their business. They're worried about their livelihood. They're worried about, you know, maintaining their revenue, looking for new ways to, to get recurring revenue. And then what ends up happening is they end up getting lost in that stew, if you will, of, of ingredients for generating revenue and forget about the most critical component, which is the customers. If they don't buy what you're selling, yep. I don't care what it is that you're creating. <laughs> if it's not for them, yep. it's just not going to sell, right? So when you lose that focus, great point that that you brought up that that when the focus becomes about the entrepreneur and not about the customer, you lose in the long run, right? Yeah. Your ideas, I mean, most people's ideas are, they just need to get over them. They need to get over their ideas. Yeah. They need to get over everything they think they know. You know, uh, like we, I mean, if, if we could just make money because of things like, because of our perspective, like if we could just say, okay, I have this perspective, this is what I think. And I'm going to just create these things and do these things and make money. Like if it was as easy as that, like you wouldn't have the failure rates that you have in business. You wouldn't have the need for so much, you know, venture capital and angel investing. And like, I mean, venture capital literally will invest in a hundred companies with the goal of just having one of them become a unicorn to pay for all the other failed 
uh, experiments like like that. It's not uh, it's just not as simple as that. Right. Yeah. Just a, a great point. Now, shifting that slightly into your overall marketing strategy. Now, Wild Foods has over 57,000 followers on Instagram. Um, you've developed your podcast, you've built a following, you've done a lot of media and PR for yourself and for your organizations that you're building out. So what are some of the mistakes you've made from a marketing perspective? And what are some of the best practices and your best ideas with regard to developing a following and developing your target audience? Yeah. So let's go with mistakes first. Mistakes. I think the pay to play thing, I think the idea that if you invest money that it'll just generate results, but it's like Mark, that's again, if, if marketing was that simple, it'd be completely different, right? But it's not. And so I actually found that when we inverse it, when we spend more effort and more thought into our marketing and less money, right? We have better results. But a lot of times it's all the marketing things that you can buy and ads and everything that you can do that, you know, that you can spend on marketing. It seems like a lot of us are, have this idea that if we spend more, we'll get more results, right? And so we, we spend more money, we spend less effort on, you know, making sure the copy is great, the offer, tweaking things. Like we take less of a scientific approach because we just convince ourselves that the money will take care of that and we end up getting worse results. So that's just kind of a broad view of it. We don't have any really big marketing mistakes that we've ever made because I've never, you know, growing this company and being bootstrapped, we never had a big marketing budget. So it was always things that we had to be very, very scrappy with. Um, and so I've, you know, I've, I've definitely wasted money over the years, but I think a lot of those are lessons and I think that they could have been more expensive. But um, I guess that answers that one. So the other one was, uh, what was the other part of the question? Yeah, looking at your best practices and just your overall oh, ideas for, for developing yep. a following. Yeah, so the best way to do that is the same way that Amazon became the number one company by market cap in the world when it surpassed the 1 trillion mark. It's customer obsession. And you can make this to be, uh, nowadays it could be audience obsession or some other word, but basically it comes down to the individual. So every business on the planet sells products individual. I don't care if you're the biggest company in the world selling to other companies, there's always going to be somebody that's going to make a decision that says, I want to buy this thing for, for this reason. So it's just a matter of boiling it down to the first principles. What is the first principles of, of business? Is it an equal exchange or an exchange, not always equal, but an exchange of a service or good for a like value, if you will. So, if you think about your marketing as, okay, I want to get people to click and buy my stuff, right? So what can I do to get the most clicks or views or whatever, right? That is actually the wrong way to think about marketing, and, but it's the way that is most prevalent today. They call them vanity metrics, of course, and people talk about engagement or whatever, but the only thing that matters for marketing, especially if you look at, uh, I mean, actually it's all marketing, not just online marketing today, but it's conversion. And so you see a lot about conversion, optimization, things like that. Uh, so paying attention to, what your marketing dollars actually bring you. So direct response marketing, go all the way back into the direct um, direct response, you know, the ad writers, copywriters, things like that. It's a really fun thing to look into. But if you just change the perception of, you know, just trying to get either dollars, convert, even conversions or views, and you ask yourself the question, why is anybody going to care? It's not money they don't care. Nobody cares about my message or my ad or anything. They also don't care about my product usually. And then what can I do to give them value so that they will care or they will feel the need to reciprocate in some way. So really it just comes down to back to Amazon customer obsession. Like what can I do to make my potential customers better in some way? How can I improve their life? How can I give them something they can use to save time and do money, to save money, 
to, to just feel good, but you know, like how can I market in a way that people will want to consume my marketing? It's, it's basically content. So people don't understand all marketing is content. Even if it's an ad, if it's an article, whatever, it's always content. And so try to figure out why people are going to care, how to get them to care and provide value. And I, I don't like the word value. So like overused, but just like make people better. That's probably a better way to think about it. How can your marketing make people better? If that was the question you asked with every single decision you made, I mean, it was like, that's, that's a game changer. Right. Great advice. Yeah. I was going to say, as you were talking that one great way to sum it up and you mentioned it at the end there, and it's a little overused. So I get your hesitation to, to use the term providing value or adding value, but that's really what it is, right? If you just stop thinking yep. about yourself, which is what we kind of started this brief portion of the discussion on and start focusing on your customer, the you or the they, if you will, and how can I provide value to individuals in the community or individuals who are stakeholders in whatever way they're stakeholders, whether they're vendors, competitors, or, or just looking to someone that you're looking to sell to, to your point, an individual either within an organization in a B2B format or a consumer in a B2C format, you really need to think about the other party and what the psychographic issues that they're concerned with. Forget about the demographics for now, at least, right? First and foremost, look mm-hmm. at who's your target audience, what are the psychographic things that they're looking for, and how you can fulfill that and speak their language to them, and you're just going to sell more naturally, right? Yep, yep. So just how help people much- get what they want. Yeah, exactly. So how much time do you spend looking at your competition, focusing on what they're doing, and then analyzing what you're doing from that perspective? Or do you just blaze your own path? No, I mean, I think it, I think it makes sense to be aware, but I don't think you should become obsessed with your competition. And I don't think competition is even the right way to think about it. I think like we take, we'll take Ralph's as an example. So a lot of the brands are in, in these niches, whether it's around paleo, ancestral health, like keto, and these different kind of diet trends that are supporting a lot of the products that people buy from us or similar other brands, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of us are selling similar products, right? And, I'm not, and I never go into the differences in products. I never badmouth other products or anything. I always only focus on what we do and, and how we do it because I don't know what other people do and I'm not going to comment on that, right? That's not, that's not of interest. And we get a lot of those emails actually. People are like, well, why is your MCP better than, you know, bulletproof or, or on it or whatever. And, and I just, I don't engage in that. We, we simply say, this is, these are the merits of our product. This is the price point. And this is, you know, and here's a, here's a link to the about us page. So you can see like maybe our sourcing and why we do things. Right. That's how I answer that question. But as far as that goes, like I actually look at a lot of my, you know, quote unquote competition as kind of partners in this industry and around this idea of kind of helping people get better and reach their goals. Right. So I don't look at them as like this cutthroat us versus them, uh, kind of, you know, like competitive landscape that I actually think is like part of the bygone era, era back to like, you know, Rockefeller and Standard Oil and things like that. Like, I just don't think that's the world we really live in anymore, especially since you can't have a monopoly. So why even try? Um, so I like to look at my competition, see what they're doing. And I like to use Pablo Picasso's quote, feel like an artist. So I like to go and find things that I think would work for our audience or our brand or things that I might think are working for them. And I'm going to take anything that I think I can use that can benefit, uh, again, our customers and our audience, right? Rather than like benefiting us as a company. And I'm going to focus on, if I think it can provide value and we can do it in a way that can provide 
you know, real value to our customers or audience, I will use that. And sometimes that means we'll make certain product decisions or we might launch a similar product or whatever. Um, but I don't, I just don't think of it as much as competition per se. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I think your reference to, I guess what the, the term would be as a stakeholder, you know, someone who's involved in your field, your, your area, one way or the other, whether they be quote unquote competitors, whether they be interested vendors or third parties, whether they be actual consumers, whether they be people who are just searching for your stuff on the internet, all of those can be considered stakeholders. And I think what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. is that when you take that more broad approach of the community of your space, whatever space that is that you're in, you come up with a more holistic message to begin with. Yeah, you're again, it's what can I do to help the people I'm serving? Right? Like that that's the only thing. That's the only reason businesses should exist. Right? Like it goes back to start with why. And if you can't think about that and answer that and like intelligently make decisions around it, you know, you don't, in my opinion, you don't have a sustainable business. You just have like basically a, a, a job that maybe makes money for a short period of time. And that's just not the place I'm interested in, in being in or operating in. Right, exactly. So what's the best way for people to reach out if they're looking to purchase from Wild Foods Co. or if they're looking to get in contact with you? The best place is my website, Colin.coach, which I've been spending a lot of time on uh, productivity, success, mindset, a lot of these things we're talking about today and just kind of sharing some of the lessons I've learned, you know, being an entrepreneur for 13 years. I'm also doing a daily podcast, a video podcast I just launched over there. Uh, so I recommend people check that out. As far as Wild Foods Co., they can obviously Google it, but wildfoods.co is the URL and they can use the code WILDCEO for 12% off. That's a, that will always be 12% off if they, if they use that code for life and that's off the entire order. And I recommend them, they check out, you know, the full selection. We have a little bit of something for every, everyone, whether it's the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom, you know, supplements, real food, everything. And so I think they'll be able to find something that they uh, might like to use their help. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for providing us with all of this information. I think it's a really useful episode for current entrepreneurs, people who have been entrepreneurs for a long time. These reminders can really sort of reshake your mindset yep. and get you back in the game to, to come back at it with new fervor, right? And, uh, and for new entrepreneurs, oh, totally. or those who are who are graduating or who are thinking about entering entrepreneurship. So thank you. This was this was a really great episode. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for calling in from Austin. I hope you stay safe and healthy while you're out there. And uh, we look forward to uh, collaborating in the future. 100%. Thanks for having me.